The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the latest controversies prompted by the UNESCO World Heritage Committee, Fernando Botero remembered, and Barclay Hendricks at Frick Madison in New York. As we mentioned last week, the 45th session of the UNESCO World Heritage Committee is taking place in the Saudi Arabian capital of Riyadh and continues until the 25th of September. The founder of the art newspaper, Anna Summers-Cox, joins me to look at the latest group of World Heritage sites and at the committee's decision not to add Venice to the organisation's endangered list. Is UNESCO so mired in politics that it cannot adequately perform its role? The Colombian artist Fernando Botero died last week and I talked to his gallerist Stefan Custo about this painter and sculptor who drew ire from many critics but achieved widespread public acclaim. And this episode's work of the week is October's Gone, Good Night, from 1973 by Barclay L. Hendricks. As a group of paintings by Hendricks goes on display among the masters at Frick Madison in New York, Amy Eng, co-curator of the exhibition, tells me about the painting. A reminder that you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, the latest episode of which features Claudette Johnson. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, meetings of the UNESCO World Heritage Committee often prompt much debate and political machination relating to sites that have been given World Heritage status by the organisation and those whose historical importance or precarious status is insufficiently acknowledged. The committee's latest decisions have been announced and have prompted inevitable fallout. Most notably, the committee decided against adding Venice to the list of endangered sites, despite its increasing vulnerability, not least the threat of rising sea levels due to climate change. Then, Various locations in Ukraine have been added to that list, even despite Russia not being signed up to protocols that would be key to protecting the sites. And Tel Es Sultan, a prehistoric site in Jericho in the occupied Palestinian territory of the West Bank, has been given World Heritage status, inflaming tensions between the governments of Palestine and Israel, the latter of which left UNESCO in 2019. While Palestinians claim the listing strengthens Palestinian identity and international recognition, right-wing Israelis have objected to the decision, even claiming UNESCO is taunting the country. As these political debates swirl around UNESCO, is it even possible for it to carry out its job of protecting heritage? I spoke to Anna Summers-Cox, the Turin-based founder of the art newspaper, former chair of the Venice Imperial Fund and long-time observer of the fortunes of UNESCO. Anna, let's start with a subject we have discussed on this podcast before, but it's been an ongoing process in relation to the potential addition of Venice to the endangered list in UNESCO. Can you tell us a bit more about the endangered list first? Can you give us a sample of other sites that are on that list and what it means really for a site to be put there? Odessa, Kiev, <laughs> Lviv, uh, obviously are on it, uh, most recent ones. But unfortunately, of the 56 sites on the endangered list, only four are in the West and the, the rest are in the global South or uh, Far East, which gives the people in that part of the world the sense that 
Westerners are somehow or other condescending to them and, you know, dictating the rules. So they tend to now to consider being put on the endangered list as a reproach and quite possibly a colonialist approach. So that's not a good development. Right. That's really interesting. And it seems to me that Venice's beef with the idea of Venice being put on the endangered list is about embarrassment. If Venice, one of the great jewels of the world, is put onto that list, it somehow says that Italy is neglecting it, right? Yeah. Well, it, generally speaking, it is now considered to be you're being put in the naughty corner if you're, if you're put on the endangered list, which is completely wrong because... UNESCO was founded in 1972 in response to a great flood that rose thigh high in St. Mark's Square and that the temples of Abu Simbel, which were going to be flooded by a dam and had to be moved. In other words, two sites that were in danger. And it was about endangered sites and protecting endangered sites. And they actually had money to spend in those days as well. Which is another question. That's now, now they don't. So the concept of protecting is inherent in the concept but what happened was that in 1991, under suggestion of the Japanese, they stopped having intellectuals to represent the countries on the UNESCO board and began to have diplomats. And diplomats, what do diplomats do? They lie for their country. The governments tell them how they should vote. And the governments think, oh, well, if a site's been declared endangered, that means we're not doing our job. This is a shaming. Therefore, we will always vote against anything being put on the endangered list. Such an extent, it's now called the blacklist. Right. So basically, it's a politicising of the very idea of UNESCO, actually. Yes, yes. And it has pulled its teeth out. Right. Uh, let's go into the specifics then in, in relation to Venice. We've talked about it before. Sea level rise is arguably the biggest threat to Venice now. But obviously, there are ongoing threats which have lasted as you mentioned in 1972 onwards, etc., and before. Why would you like Venice to be added to the endangered list? I would like it to be added to the endangered list because it would be declaring something that is so blindingly obvious that it needs to be enshrined. It needs to have gilding put on it. It needs to have, you know, flowers all around it. Everybody notice Venice is now officially in danger and it is symbolic of many other places that are in danger, not just Tuvalu, you know, in the South Pacific. And Italy really missed a trip because it could have actually led the world by admitting it. In fact, they just played the old card. It's not just embarrassment, it has to be said. It's also that local politics are deeply corrupt and huge quantities of money are made out of tourism. So the little sop that they have given the world of saying they will now charge day trippers five euros a day to come in is no more than a sop. It's not going to control the numbers. They don't want to control the numbers. They want to sell more slices of pizza. And so very strong opposition from inside Italy, huge and ridiculous cheering from local politicians and denunciations of people who said that Venice is in danger. So it's been turned into a political instrument. And that seems to me to be a common factor in so many of these debates about UNESCO Mm -hmm. and about endangered listing and, and indeed the nomination for world heritage status. In some ways, it seems to me that it is resisted because of the obligations that it might put on a state in in all sorts of ways. But actually, if as a nation state, you want a site to be listed, you sign up to a whole lot of obligations 
one of the things you have to do is declare a buffer zone around it within which say, you will not do anything that could compromise the integrity of the site. Therefore, you can't put up great big hotels around Angkor Wat, for example. So, I mean, it's a two-way process. You ask for the honour of one of your sites becoming a World Heritage Site, but then you say that you're going to do a lot of things, which I have to say some countries don't do, and the Venetians aren't doing. And that's rather disgraceful. There is a common belief that becoming a World Heritage Site is bad for you because it increases the number of tourists. Well, that's up to the nation state. I mean, if they want to have a World Heritage Site and they want to have more tourists, that's obviously the game they're trying to play. Right. But in the committee meeting, not one national representative spoke in favour of the proposal to add Venice to the list. So are you saying then that Italy's diplomacy is effectively influencing other nations and therefore there's a sort of vow of silence or in other words, there are diplomatic agreements that are controlling heritage in a way that they're controlling other global issues. The Italian ambassador, UNESCO, was working overtime. But if you look at the composition of the World Heritage Committee, 21 members, only three were from the West. All the others came from other parts of the world. And so what I said earlier about how the rest of the world tends to feel that UNESCO is imposing a kind of Western standard of how things should be looked after, etc. It was very easy to get them to vote with Italy. And the myth is that Italy is a you know, a wonderful artistic country. It looks after its great works of art, etc., etc. Not true. <laughs> um, the ways in which that is not true relate, it seems to me, to the tensions between a national government, a local government, these extraordinary cultural wars which are happening in Italy at the moment. Do you feel that this sort of aspect has been heightened since the recent change of government there? Yes, we have a right-wing government in Italy and they continually in the sort of boxer mode, you know, whom can we hit next? International organisations are top of the list. No outside criticism allowed. Right, and it, but it does seem like really childish, some of the, the kind of celebration of... Venice is not being added to list. It's like, you know, sort of emojis and, and, you know, and sort of odd celebrations, you know. Yes, yes. I mean, the mayor is the very first mayor of Venice who doesn't actually live in Venice. He lives on the mainland and has extremely large business interests roundabout. I won't say any more than that. And he immediately posted this sort of turquoise blue manifesto thing um, saying, hurrah, not listed. The enemies have been defeated. And yes, there's a little emoji at the bottom of a man flexing his his biceps. So who are they perceiving the enemies to be then? We dangerous liberals, as usual. <laughs> you know, I mean, the world has been Trumpified, hasn't it? Right, exactly. And, and it, that seems to me to be true of the Tel Sultan, which is this area in Jericho, in Palestinian territory on the West Bank, which inevitably is a contentious site, given the ongoing troubles there. Yes, I mean, that, that is another question. I mean, that, that is the old Palestine-Israel split, and the extent to which something called Palestine does or does not exist. And when UNESCO in uh, 2011, I think it was, allowed Palestine to become a member of UNESCO, at that point, America cancelled its funding because it doesn't recognise the existence of Palestine. So what the Israelis would be saying about Tel Sultan, which, by the way, is not a biblical site, it's much, much older. Um, yeah, many, many, uh, many yeah, hundreds yeah, of years BC. Thousands yeah. of years. I mean, yeah. many. Th- I mean, the oldest, uh, the oldest Israelis are sort of one thousand five hundred BC. This is something at like seven thousand BC. It's not that they say this is a biblical site and therefore should be Israeli. They're just saying this shouldn't be under the name of Palestine at all. 
Right, exactly. And and also they are building settlements relatively nearby. So it comes into that whole question of, you know, the, the buffer zone around the site. Yes, yes. And of course, it taps into the international relations with the UN, of course, to which UNESCO is related. And the fact that the United Nations is repeatedly stating in its pronouncements that Israel is illegally occupying Palestinian territories. So the tension between Israel and the United Nations is also informing the reaction to UNESCO's statements, right? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, United Nations are viewed by Israel in a very mixed way and and, and they certainly consider UNESCO to be a pro-Palestinian patsy. Right. And then, of course, there's Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And there are sites that have been added to the endangered list, as you say. Mm-hmm. What occurs to me is that UNESCO's job seems pretty impossible, given the fact that it is being used in different ways as a political football. It's being seen as an instrument of politics. Do you think it has power and can it exercise power if it does have any? It has power in the sense that people still want their sites to be declared World Heritage Sites. I mean, it's just named at its current meeting in Riyadh. I think it's named about 40 new ones. But they want the jam and uh, don't have to work for the jam. That's one of the things. Secondly, I think they have got to make the process of declaring something at risk a different one. It can't be voted for by a committee of member states because that makes it immediately politicised. I think it should be just... Okay, we in UNESCO declare this to be an endangered site for this and this and this reasons. And it has to explain very much better to the general public how it works. It's also, unfortunately, a rather French model bureaucracy. Right. But in that sense, is it even a possibility that that could happen in the sense that the governance is so complicated that it would never be able to pass a resolution or agreement which would put the decisions back in the hands of, say, scientists and and archaeologists and so on, because we're so far down the line of the diplomatic political aspect. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm afraid I think that this is the case. And this latest move by Italy, which they thought was just business as usual because they always vote against a site being declared at risk, I think has been a really important nail in the coffin of UNESCO. Right. Okay, so what's next? (laughs) Well, I mean, if you were to shut down UNESCO, you would have to open it up the next day. That's the only thing can be said. Something like it would have to be born. So I think that one has to get people from all over the world, not just from the West, which founded it, to discuss what kind of UNESCO they want and see to it whether it can be remodeled. I mean, if the Japanese in 1991 could get its whole constitution changed just by pushing, then one must be able to change its constitution a second time. Right. Lastly, I just wanted to ask, look, UNESCO is protecting some wonderful spaces. Was there anything on the list that caught your eye as a sort of a wonderful new addition? Yes, wonderful not, but interesting. The former naval headquarters in Buenos Aires, where the generals took people to torture them and kill them between the late 70s and early 80s, has just been put on the UNESCO World Heritage List as a memorial of the horrors of that time. And on the beautiful side, well, something that one never thought, <laughs> one thought already was on it, but is a Maison Carré in Nîmes, you know, that wonderful little Roman temple, but it's just been declared a World Heritage Site, you know. Yeah, uh, but, but there are many, many natural sites. That's the great thing about UNESCO. It's not just for the built heritage, the man-made heritage, but also for natural sites. Okay, well, Anna, thank you so much. Thank you.
You can read more about UNESCO and the World Heritage Committee at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, Fernando Botero and Barclay Hendricks. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. Robert Newland, whose work as a financial advisor to the convicted art fraudster Inigo Philbrick helped him scam clients out of tens of millions of dollars over a multi-year period, was sentenced to one year and eight months in prison by a New York district court judge on Wednesday. Newland, who pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud last September, had been permitted to await sentencing at his home in London under curfew. Judge Sidney H. Stein said Newland had until the 1st of December to surrender himself into custody. The court recommended that Newland be transferred to the UK to serve out his sentence, though it will ultimately be up to the US Department of Justice. Newland was also ordered to pay $67.5 million in restitution, along with forfeiting an untitled 2006 painting by Mark Bradford. Prosecutors argue that Newland used his financial expertise and credentials to give credibility to Philbrick's art business. Two years on from the unveiling of Christo and Jean-Claude's monumental Arc de Triomphe wrapped, the work will get a new lease of life in Paris. The mayor of the French capital, Anne Hidalgo, announced this week that the 25,000 square metres of silvery blue polypropylene fabric and 3,000 metres of red polypropylene rope used to wrap the Arc will be recycled and repurposed for future use in the city, including shade structures and tents for Paris's 2024 Olympic and Paralympic Games. The effort is being led by the environmental organisation for the oceans. And finally, archaeologists have revealed more details about the world's oldest wooden structure discovered in Central Africa, dating from almost half a million years ago. The structure was excavated in 2019 upstream of Kalambo Falls near Zambia's border with Tanzania by a team of archaeologists and scientists. In a report published in the scientific journal Nature this week, the team from universities and organisations in the UK, Belgium and Zambia presents its evidence for the earliest structural use of wood at least 476,000 years ago. The discovery highlights the activities of homonyms, human relatives, such as chopping down trees to make digging tools. You can read all these stories on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This September, discover Contemporary New York, a sales series focusing on the defining art of the modern era. The pioneering post-war painting of Helen Frankenthaler, the influential photography of Nan Golding, and Latin American art by Diego Rivera are among the standouts this season. Experience the art in person at the public exhibition beginning on the 23rd of September at the Rockefeller Center Galleries in New York. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. In a moment, Fernando Botero. But first, here's something coming up on the podcast. In the next episode of The Week in Art, Marina Abramovich on her major show at the Royal Academy in London. I always think of future and I always think of the body as something that moves, change and get from young to middle age and from middle age to old and finally die. You know, I'm 77. All of these pieces that I perform in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, artists present from 65. I'm not able to do this, and but I don't understand why young generation could not actually experience these works and the public witness this, the new versions of the work. I mean, you can have a Bach and you can still go and see techno Bach concerts. Why not in the same way this work? That's Marina Abramovich at the Royal Academy next week on The Week in Art, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Now, on the 15th of September, the Colombian painter and sculptor Fernando Botero died at the age of 91 in Monaco. His family said he died from complications relating to pneumonia. The president of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, that Botero was, quote, the painter of our traditions and defects, the painter of our virtues, the painter of our violence and our peace. Though the artist went on to spend most of his life in Europe and the United States, his childhood in Colombia and the political events and class struggles of his homeland remained central to his work. He achieved huge international market success and had many museum shows, but was not a favourite of most art critics or leading contemporary art curators. But, Botero said, from the public he got the opposite attention. I spoke to Botero's gallerist for more than a quarter of a century, Stefan Cousteau of the Waddington Cousteau Gallery in London, about the artist. Stefan, you worked with Fernando Botero for 25 years, I believe. Tell me what he was like. I met him in Paris, actually, socially, because he, he was, of course, a painter, a sculptor. We all know that, but he was also very social and uh, He liked to go out uh, at night and be with some friends. So I met him with my cousin, wearing Hopkins, at a dinner. And immediately, we liked each other, actually. And we decided like to organize an exhibition of his work two or three years afterwards. One of the things that I'm reading in the obituaries and his statements and so on is that he seemed to have a tremendous warmth towards people. Would you say that that's reflected in the work? Is that part of the joy that one sometimes sees in his work? Yes. You have the two sides, actually. It can be very uh, round, you know. We are talking about roundness and, yeah. uh, and voluptuousness. And at the same time, it can be tough, you know. It's, so, it's, it's always like a, a duality in his work. Let's talk about the roundness, because he was always very clear that he didn't like the description fat. When people said there were fat figures, he talked about volume. And intriguingly, he talked about how in making these sort of very voluminous figures, he was building on the works that he saw in Italy, works by Giotto and so on. Tell us more about that. Yeah, he was very influenced by Italian art from, from the Renaissance. He had a house in, the, in Italy for, for 40 years, uh, in Pietra Santa. And um, he was working in Italy for two or three months per year, actually. And uh, he was surrounded by beauty because when you are in Italy, you go to Florence, you go to Pise, you go to, to Rome, and you go to all those uh, fabulous museums. And um, so he was very influenced by Italian Renaissance, for sure. And of course, there was this seminal trip that he took to Europe in the 1950s. First to Madrid and spent a lot of time in the Prado and then to Florence. And that seems to be an extraordinarily formative experience for him. Absolutely. I think it is the, the beginning of his, of his career, actually. He was influenced by those, those masters. And, and then he found a style, actually. He found a style and in 1957 when he um, enlarged a mandolin. And then um, he discovers the expansion of forms. Tell us more about that mandolin, because the key thing is that it, in essence, is on perhaps on first glance a normal still life. But then you do note quite quickly that the mandolin has a tiny hole. That's the key thing. It's, an, it's this idea of scale, expansion, contraction of scale that became his hallmark. Yes, this is exactly what you are describing. You have, you have the small holes and a huge form around it. And then the aspect of the mandolin is inflated in a way. 
and it's it's unique. It became something unique, and his style began at that time. And then he used that technique, of course, for still life, for and also for characters and for for everything. And he created his unique style until last week. Right. Yeah. It's often said that he was not appreciated by critics and not enough museums and so on. But there's a key moment where he was bought by the Museum of Modern Art in New York, quite early on, in fact. And it's this portrait of a 14-year-old Mona Lisa. That's quite an important moment for him, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It was in 1971. Uh, the, the MoMA bought, uh, bought one painting. Of course, it is very important in, in his career, of course. But he was also with very good art dealers like Bayler at the time and, and afterwards Marlboro. People think that he didn't do so much museum show, but it is not true. He did maybe two or three museum show per year for maybe 40 years. So he did more than 100 museum show. And he had the capacity because he had put on the side maybe 100 or 150 works of art, sculptures, uh, drawings and oils to be able to respond to any museum at any time, in a way. He didn't have to ask uh, collectors to lend some, some works because he, he was prepared for that. He was very organised. That's really interesting. So in a way, he was curating a collection of his own work yes. that could, in essence, fill any museum that made a request. Yes, and he did it many times. He did it many times. That's interesting. Yes. I, I wanted to explore a bit this whole, whole idea of his relationship with the avant-garde because on the one hand you know as a very young man he wrote an article about Picasso which forced his expulsion from his Jesuit school so he was clearly fascinated by avant-garde painting but then for instance he goes on to say that his popularity was about the divorce between modern art where everything's obscure and the and the viewer who feels that they need to be told by a professor whether something is good or not. So on the one hand, he embraces some aspects of the avant-garde, but in other ways, he rejects it. Tell me what you think his attitude towards modern art, towards the avant-garde was. Well, I think he was in love with, with modern art and avant-garde. And actually, he did an exhibition to go back to museum in Aix-en-Provence some years ago, and it was Picasso and Botero. So you, you had maybe like 50 Picassos and maybe 50 Boteros at the same time. So he liked the idea like to have a conversation with other painters. And also, as you maybe know, he recreated in his own way some Velázquez, some Goya. He even done some uh, Joconde in his own style. So, so yeah, like the Joconde, the, the Mona Lisa, as you say, the Velázquez and so on. Well, I guess one of the key aspects is, to what extent was he a satirist to a degree? Was he in any way, as well as making an, a clear homage to those artists, was he also in some ways putting a pin in the balloon of that sort of reputation and that fame? Was there an element of mischievousness about what he was doing? I don't think so. I think he was always embracing the, the art, you know, he didn't want to critique anything. He just wanted to have his own style and play with it, with some critics and with some um, enthusiasm at the same time. But what is important, and you were talking about critics, of course, it's always a love and hate from the critics, from all his life. But today, if you see the homage from newspaper, from uh, magazine, from TVs and from radios. It's all over the planet. I have never seen in my career, like I never seen an homage like this for a painter or a sculptor. 
it's totally international. So maybe today everybody likes or loves uh, Fernando Botero. It was not the case during his lifetime. But today, I think people are realizing that he has created something unique. And uh, he was also playing with politics, but he was also also looking at the news every day. He was interested in, in uh, what was happening in Colombia on a daily basis, every day. That was his main concern. And um, he wanted like, to, with his own art, sometimes to send uh, a message. Yeah, let's talk more about that then, because one body of work, and which did get a critical response uh, that was very positive, Roberta Smith at the New York Times wrote a very positive review, it was in 2006 at Marlborough Gallery in New York, where he showed the Abu Ghraib pictures, which had also obviously been shown in Europe. And so this is a response to those famous events at Abu Ghraib prison in the Iraq war. What's interesting about those images is that, as Roberta Smith pointed out, in some ways the figures in those were less voluminous, interestingly. In a way, the subject was so grave that he wanted to address it in a way which could not be construed as in any way taking it too lightly. You're right, because I think he didn't want to be funny at all. He did that for the people, and he did that for free. And me as a dealer, you know, I had clients who wanted to buy some of those works, you know, because they thought... It would be important for them, like, to have a work from that uh, Abu Ghraib uh, series. But he always said to all the dealers, nothing is for sale. Nothing is for sale. I don't want any money for that. It is just a cry. It is just, it is, it is just a, a shout. I, I want to express myself in many ways. And at the end, he gave the old theory to uh, the Berkeley University uh, in California. That seems to me to be an important gesture in a way because he had a feeling for public art because I know he responded to the Mexican muralists as a young man and therefore felt in donating them as a kind of public gift. It was a similar gesture in a way. It was making an art for the people, as he said. Yeah, no, this is true. And also, of course, he was, and the critics say he's very commercial, but, but this is true in a way. He knew how to sell paintings and he was good at, at it. But at the same time, sometimes, many times, he was able like, to give for free to a country like Colombia because he was also a collector. That is to be said. He was a collector for many, many, many years. And he was surrounded also, by, of course, by those, uh, those works at home, at many homes, because he had a home in, uh, in New York, in, in Paris, in Italy, and uh, in, of course in Medellin and Bogota. And so he was surrounded by Picasso uh, oil or drawings or, or Vuilla, Bonnard, a lot of, of works from the, the 19th century and 20th century. And suddenly he felt that it was better like, to give all his collection, like 30 years of collecting, to two museums, one in, in Bogota and one in Medellin. And so he gave everything. He didn't keep one painting or one drawing. He gave away for free all those um, works of art and he kept nothing. So after he gave all that, when I was going to his studio or his flat, there were no Picassos anymore, no Vuillard anymore, only Boteros and Varys. Voilà. Right. So that public spiritedness is interesting in the sense also of his, the embrace of him by Colombian people. Because I, I read a piece by Pablo Elguera in the Los Angeles Times in which he said that when he visited Colombia he felt that he'd never been somewhere where an artist had been so absorbed by their public. 
So I found that interesting that he was embraced on a sort of everyday level by the people of Colombia. So I just wonder, do you have any sense of their response to his passing? Before talking about Colombia, for sure, we were talking about critics. The critics, they loved him and, and they hate him at the same time. But the street always loved Botero. And the street is the key. And and his, his love from in South Africa, in in Indonesia, in in China, or in South America, even in Europe, everywhere is known. And the street like him. And they liked him for 70 years. And that is more important for me than the critics. Because at the end, the street is always right in, in some ways. In Colombia, I think the Colombian people are in love with Botero because he was always faithful to them and uh, he gave them what he, what he could, actually. The only problem he had is because uh, Colombia was not an easy country for some years, of course. He was sometimes a little bit scared to go back to Colombia because he didn't want to be um, trapped by uh, the yes. guerrilla. So he had to be careful. That was his main concern because he wanted to go back much more to Colombia. But that was a little frustration about that situation. And Stefan, I understand that you, you saw Fernando three weeks ago. Yes, this is true. I went with my, with my wife, Laurence. We went to his studio in Monaco. It was the 30th of August, actually. He was very happy like, to show us his last drawings because he was 91 years old. His health was not really good. We all know that. But he was going every day to the studio to make some drawings. And actually, I bought two drawings on the 30th of August. And I was pleased to buy those uh, drawings. And he was happy. And um, we are talking about warmth. He was really happy to share and to talk about art until the end. Okay, well, Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You can read more about Botero on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Frick Madison in New York this week opened Barclay L. Hendricks' Portraits at the Frick, with 14 early works by the African-American artist who created a distinctive form of contemporary portraiture by uniting portrayals of black figures with the traditions of European painting. The beautiful catalogue accompanying the show reflects Hendricks's enduring influence, featuring contributions from artists Awal Arizgu, Rashid Johnson, Fahama Baku and Nick Cave. Before we hear from the co-curator of the show, Amy Eng, here's what Nick Cave said about Hendrix's influence on our sister podcast, A Brush With, last year. And then I saw a Barclay Hendrix painting from like the early 70s. I think it was really the first time that I saw myself. And it was titled A Man in a White Suit. It was the first time that I saw myself in this portrait and it was style it was you know confidence it was bold you know he had a strut in his sort of strive in his position and so I was just like oh my god I needed that painting in my life but you know back then twelve thousand dollars was like a million dollars to me (laughs) 
So, as I said, Amy Eng is the co-curator of the exhibition with Antoine Sargent, and she's chosen to talk about another painting with a figure dressed in white, October's Gone, Good Night, from 1973. Amy, October's Gone, Good Night was made in 1973. Where was Barclay Hendricks at that time? He was teaching at Connecticut College in New London, Connecticut. And did he have a kind of artistic reputation at that time? Was he showing much? Yeah, he was. I mean, as we know, Barclay didn't really acquire the fame that he has today until many decades um, later. Mm. On campus, however, I think he had a name for himself. He participated in faculty shows. So he was sort of known on the campus. And the whole idea of the eventual subject of October's Gone Goodnight was a student at Connecticut College who was writing him letters anonymously. Such an intriguing story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so so tell, tell us more. This was her sign-off, is that right? October's well, you gone. know, we don't know. I mean, he didn't really get into exactly where it comes from. It sounds like a great way to sign off a letter. And he described these letters that he was getting totally anonymously, unsigned, as poetic. And so I I sort of see that connection. Maybe this is a line from one of the letters, the way it was being closed. He described it as eventually she made her identity known to him. And then he had her in to sit for a portrait. She was married at the time and her husband came in to the studio to see what was going on. And Barclay said, I'm interested in painting, not messing around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and indeed that was the last visit by her husband exactly right? and all was well <laughs> okay great so let's get into what we're seeing depicted because there are three representations mm-hmm. of her on there so it is one person shown from three different angles and he's talked about this motif coming from greek mythology the three graces as sort of an immediate inspiration you know he was always looking at art history was always looking at european history to inject into his own innovative paintings. Um, and he also described the sort of triple portrait of a single person as a way to deal with someone for whom one pose was not enough. Um, and, it, you know, he's he was such a human painter and that really seeing the individual that he was painting, even if we don't know who she is, you have absolutely no doubt that there was a flesh and blood person, a real human behind his painting, no matter what he did with it, no matter how, you know, he turned it into the three graces or anything like that. There was a real person. I think one of the interesting aspects of that is to what extent we can argue that Hendrix was a painter who was interested in stylizing or idealizing humans and to what extent he wanted it to be a kind of form of realism. Sure. That's surely a really interesting area in his work. Absolutely. And I I think it's, you know, the more I learn about him and the more I investigate the some hundred portraits we know by him, he was both. He was both attracted to the individual that he encountered and wanted to immortalize. And he was an innovator. So in the catalog for this exhibition, we've published some unpublished photographs that he took of the subject in preparation for the portrait. And you can see where he's making edits. You know, she has a a birthmark on her arm that is whisked away by paint. She's not wearing glasses in the photographs, but he puts a pair on her. And he does this throughout his portraiture practice. He constructs them as much as he's celebrating the individual, just as any artist has done in the history of European painting. The addition of glasses is really intriguing, isn't it? Because it it seems to me that he's what he's doing there is he's setting himself a painterly problem. Absolutely. So you get reflections in a way that 
you wouldn't have otherwise. But at the same time, he would happily take glasses off of people who normally wore them. So there's another painting in the show of his wife, Susan, called Ma Petite Kumquat, where she normally wears glasses. He had her take them off and stand with her eyes closed. And she said that was a different kind of challenge for him, you know, rather than the reflection, what does it look like to have a subject who's closing their eyes to present themselves to you? So I think there was always a, a complex motivation behind these decisions. This painting is one of his white-on-white paintings. Like, there's an amazing painting called Dot Cool, and there's an extraordinary painting, a wonderful painting called What's Going On, which is a multi-figure composition. What was he aiming for with the white-on-white paintings? And is it a repeated motif in the work in terms of, again, setting himself a kind of painterly challenge and then working through a series, if you like? So we've brought together a group of the white-on-white limited palette paintings in this exhibition. And what became clear once they were finally here in the flesh is that there's a little bit of an evolution. I think he's trying different things in each one. The limited palette in general, where he's doing a figure whose clothing sort of matches in chroma the background, it doesn't start with the white-on-white. It actually starts probably with yellow-on-yellow. And so he's sort of playing around with what figure and ground can do and the mix of materials. So it's always the background is matte, acrylic, and the figure is in an oil that's varnished. So there's always going to be some kind of material discrepancy. October's Gone Goodnight is the earliest of the white-on-white. And when you stand in this room and you see this painting versus the ones that he paints two, three, five years later, you can see the evolution. This is a very simple, and when you stand away, it's almost like a minimalist abstraction. As he gets a little bit more into this mode of the white on white, it seems to me that he's exploring the complexity of whiteness, white paint, white color, and the complexity of black skin, the skin that is called black. Um, And so there's a group portrait called Lagos Ladies of four women And you can see where the white on white allows for the range in skin tone of the skin color we call black to really come out. That's really fascinating. And and I think one of the striking things about those kind of comments are in this whole context of what he was trying to do in terms of his representation of black people. Because I hadn't realized until reading the catalogue, in some ways there was a sort of resistance to his work because in a way it didn't acknowledge the black struggle in the way that some people wanted him to. Can you say more about that? Sure. And when we look at these paintings now, and especially when young artists encounter them on Instagram or something, they seem so contemporary. They seem like they were painted right now. Then you find out they were painted 50 years ago. And 1965, Malcolm X is assassinated. Then the year after Barclay goes to Europe for the first time and counters the old master paintings that would really change the course of his own artistic practice. This was not a moment to be embracing European legacies as a black artist in America. It was just right after the civil rights movement. It was during the black arts movement where exactly what you're saying, highlighting the struggle and the strength of black communities meant exposing the legacies of European history. For Barclay to be embracing European art and its legacies as part of his new figuration of black subjects was not popular. And you can see this with the way that his paintings entered museum collections sort of later, or, you know, a number of his early portraits, and this show focuses really on the early portraits, they stayed in his personal collection for some decades. And then when the art world and the world caught up (laughs) to Barclay, that's when people started clamoring for these portraits. So he was, in a sense, ahead of his time. I think he was out of his time. Um, And it really points to somebody who was so independent. He really, really did what he believed in and, and was really not paying that much attention to the market or the trends or the art world around him. He let everybody else do their own thing. 
that this is the star that he was following. It's really interesting in that context of this idea that in some way he's, his work was apolitical because now you can't even begin to comprehend that anybody could believe that it was apolitical, if you know what I mean. He never wanted to categorize his work as political, but I, I think it's impossible to divorce the time from the objects. And even, you know, he, in his titlings, he would give really clever titles to paintings that point to a very, very conscious political moment. And so I think avoiding the category of political art was important, but also because his art was very layered. His art spoke at many levels to many different people. He believed his paintings, even though they are representational and figural, to be abstractions and engaging with minimalism, form and ground. They were both. They could be more than one thing. And I think to pinpoint him as a political artist at that time was something he absolutely would not have accepted. The trip to Europe in 1966, the interesting thing about that in relation to what you were just saying about the resistance to sort of European dominated narratives, he recognised that, didn't he, when he was there? He, he sure did, yeah. He looked at those paintings and did not see black figures or if he did see them, they were in some way hidden or denied agency or whatever. And so so he recognised that even in the moment that he took on those artists, he recognised the, the complexities and, and the difficulties with taking them on. And he saw them as both, as a legacy he wanted to engage in as an artist, no matter what race he was, and a tradition of, of art history that did not have enough uh, celebrations of black figures that were personal, humanizing portraits and not just the servant, not just the black saint, not just the you know African uh, stock filler figure in, in a group scene. So he came back with both the respect and admiration for the traditions of European art history and an awareness of what was not there. Um, and I think it was, you know, coming back with that and thinking, I can do that. I can do both. I can make that legacy come to life in my painting and give black figures the beauty, grandeur and style that European sitters have had throughout all of these centuries. When he took on the old masters, were there specific references that he made to particular paintings? Like, for instance, I know he went to the Prado. Did he comment on Rubens's Three Graces? Or do we know, for instance, where he may have got the source of the Three Graces for this painting that we're talking about? Yes. I mean, he, he talks about it generally. And I mean, he was so widely traveled. In that three months, he went to so many museums. He didn't pinpoint specific paintings, with the exception of an unnamed painting, but we can easily identify this, of a um, portrait of a man in the Uffizi Galleries by Giovanni Battista Moroni, so we know which mm -hmm. one that is. But otherwise, he talked about Van Dyck, he talked about Jan van Eyck, he, you know, he talked about seeing some of the works by these artists. Obviously, he's now going to be on display at the Frick, even though it's not the Frick, it's, it's a very it's different kind of Frick that his work is on display. And after the European trip, did he then pay more attention than he might have before to the collections of old masters in the US. Absolutely. And, and the way he talked about the Frick collection, it was a little bit like how Madrid or Spain has the Prado, New York and the United States has the Frick as this sort of temple to the greatest achievements of European art history. Um, and so, you know, he really saw this as a place for inspiration on this side of the world that was a, a little bit more local to him. It was very, very important to him, though, that he wasn't copying and he wasn't imitating. He tells a story about being at the National Gallery in London, seeing a, a painting by Van Dyck, a red robe, 
and getting ready to get a permission to copy because artists could do that. They could go and, and get a little permission from the director to copy it. And as, as he was going to get his artist materials, he said, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't copy somebody else's work. Whatever I was doing, whatever I was imbibing from other people, it had to be done Barclay Hendrick style. Lastly, I love the fact that he's looking backwards, looking at the old masters, and you've chosen to ask lots of contemporary artists about his effect on them. That sort of idea of going in both directions to the past and forward seems to me crucial because he is now probably more influential than I think he ever has been in the past. Would you agree? Indeed. And my collaborator on this project at the Frick is Antoine Sargent. Um, and with Antoine, we decided we would divide up the responsibilities of, of this giant legacy. And I would look at Barclay in the past and Antoine would really look at Barclay and the future and sort of his own legacies for contemporary artists of the generations that followed. And we were so grateful that eight really wonderful, prominent, mind-boggling artists could speak or write so eloquently about the place of Barclay in their own formations and inspiration. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you. Barclay L. Hendrick's Portraits at the Frick continues at Frick Madison in New York until the 7th of January 2024. The catalogue I mentioned, published by the Frick with Risley Electa, is priced $50. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Anna, Stefan, and Amy. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week with that Marina Abramovich interview. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.